morning, everybody. And hello to those of you watching online, whether on demand or uh, right now, live. Welcome. Uh, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at more than just verse 1 today, so you want to be ready for that in just a few moments. We like to say at Five Oaks that understanding the Bible and your, and your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, so that's why we open our Bibles every week and we, we dig in to see what God has to say about our part in His story and about His story. And so uh, we're on a series, we're in a series called The First Page. It's a series on Genesis 1-1 through 2-4. And uh, we're, we're in it for, for a while because it really introduces so many of the different themes, major themes that go throughout the Bible. And so we'll have some individual sermons on verses and parts of verses. And then we'll stop and do a mini-series on various subjects. And so we're in a mini-series right now in the second word, which is God. But it's a word that occurs 35 times in the first chapter. And so we've been looking at a lot of the first chapter and then where that theme takes us uh, beyond the first uh, chapter. And so uh, week one, we looked at God being the creator uh, in the beginning, uh, which is one word in the Hebrew text, God, the second word, created. And we looked at God being the creator, and because he's the creator, he owns everything. And so anything that is in our possession, whether it be our time, our jobs, our careers, our education, our uh, money, it's his. And he has given us everything that we have in order to manage it for his purposes. And so we are, we're stewards uh, of God's stuff. Week two, we looked at God being a spiritual being and that God has created other spiritual beings. And uh, while it sounds weird, maybe, in our world to talk about it, there is a spiritual realm or a heavenly realm and there is an earthly realm and there are spiritual beings and there are some spiritual beings that have rebelled. And the Bible very clearly says we're in a battle with spiritual beings that have rebelled against God like we have rebelled against God. And we have resources to take on those spiritual beings that are trying to mess with our lives so that we mess with God's purposes. And, and so uh, we talked that week specifically about prayer as being one of the ways the Apostle Paul says that we can do battle with those spiritual beings. And I remember saying that week, I said, you know, maybe you prayed this last week, maybe this week you'll really pray, <laughs> uh, recognizing what the stakes are um, in that. Week three, Last week, we looked at how God is not just a bigger, faster, stronger, better version than us. He is what theologians say is wholly other. He is, uh, he has, there are aspects of God, attributes of God that transcend anything that we are or can even begin to understand. Maybe we can begin to understand them, but we can't really grasp them. Grasp them in our minds. We have a way of shrinking God or really looking at the ways that God has connected with us and kind of focusing on that and not recognizing that God is way beyond the ways that He steps down and connects with us. And it's a good thing that He is not just a bigger version of us because we're not dependable, but He is, and He is able. We're, we're not able to do so many things. We, we can make all kinds of promises that we can't come through because of all of our limits, but God he is able, and he is not only able, he is loving. Uh, he loves us, 
in, in a way that uh, we can't even understand um, because it's so much greater than any kind of love that we can express. So today we're week four. We're, uh, we're ex- continuing to explore the, different, the ways that God is different than us. And so today's big idea is that because God created us in His image for His purposes, only God can really show us the best path to our best destiny. Now, if you look at that statement, or you heard that statement, if you look at that statement, let's go back to um, one. That is one of the most controversial things you can say in our world today. I mean, it is one of the most controversial. Absolutely, it goes, uh, it, it goes, flies in the face of so much of the conventional wisdom of our world. And to show you how conventional the wisdom of our world is, I want you to finish some phrases for me. Um, and it's, it's the message that's counter to this one. So, no matter what, be true to yourself. Follow your heart. You do chase your dreams, right? That's the conventional wisdom. You look inside of yourself to figure out who you are and to figure out what you should be doing in this world, how you should be living your life. And then Jesus comes along, or you hear about Jesus having come along and having said things like, die to yourself, deny yourself, put other people first. Again, completely goes in the face of conventional wisdom. And then there's Genesis 1, the first page which starts with God. He is the subject of the first line, of the first chapter, or the first page, and of the entire book of the Bible. He is the subject. We eventually get, in the first page, we eventually get to us. But when we get to us, we discover that we are made in His image, and that He determines our purpose. He gives us a purpose. Now, at some point in this series, we're going to get to what that purpose is, what it looks like, how it works out in our work life, school life, all that sort of thing. We're going to get to that eventually. But right now, I want you to look at chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 26. And I just want you to look at how it talks about him creating us and him giving purpose. It, 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 creating in his image, it, it permeates this entire passage. So, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we have this countercultural conviction that because we're made in the image of God and for His purposes, only God can really tell us what our purpose is and what our destiny is and what our best destiny is and what our best paths are to get to that uh, destiny. So here's where we're going to go 
in today's sermon. Uh, since that's not the conventional wisdom, a lot of people want to determine their own path, and I just want to ask a question. We'll, we'll look at this, which is if that's the way you want to go, if you want to choose your own path, and we all do, uh, every day we choose our own path in many ways, but if, if we're decided that we're going to choose our own path, I want to ask the question, and the question is, how good is your sense of direction? And so we'll look at that, and we'll look at what that approach looks like. It's a look-in, it's a, what theologian Trevin Wax says in our you know, culture, basically, you look in first, you look out, people around you, you look up, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And, um, and ask some questions of it that are oftentimes not asked. And we're going to look at why we should look up first, and then finally end with a couple of applications that you can take into your workplaces, your schools, your homes, your neighborhoods, starting, you know, tomorrow. You can actually start, start today. So uh, we're going to pray as we always do for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to us. And uh, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have created us in your image and for a purpose. Jesus, you have shown us what being made in the image of God looks like. Spirit, illuminate the way of Jesus for us. Empower his way in us, in our church life, with our family and friends, in our work life. Father, in this political season, uh, give us wisdom as we seek justice and mercy. Help us to lean into what is true and into truth and keep us humble and gracious throughout. May your people be a humble and gracious people, uh, especially in this time, this time of, uh, in our nation where there is so much, so much anger and so much hate. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so throughout the series, we've been asking some of our younger Five Oakers to recite Genesis 1-1 to us. Let's see what we have today. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Awesome. All right. Saying that God can show us the best path to our best destiny makes a lot of people nervous. You, um, you maybe want to be the master of your own destiny, and uh, that's usually the idea out there. We, we live, that's what we breathe. We need to be the masters of our own destiny. You may want to pick your own path. You don't want anybody else telling you what path to take. I read an article several years ago, somebody who had read a lot of the writings of a lot of the atheists going way back, as well as some of the modern atheists. And he said, if you read long enough in any atheistic author, authors that focus on their atheism, he says they will always at some point, every single one of them at some point will express this sentiment. Basically, I don't want to believe in God because I don't want there to be a being that tells me what to do. I, mean, I just don't, don't want that. Now, that's not to say that they don't believe in God because they just don't want to. They have, you know, a whole variety of reasons for that. But everyone comes down to that sentiment or shares that sentiment at some point. But here's the thing. If you decide you want to choose your own path to what you believe is your best destiny, you better have a really good sense of direction. I was driving home from Saturday service uh, last, last Saturday, 
I put on the radio, and, uh, which I don't do very often. I'm usually listening to a podcast, but I put on the radio and NPR, and there was uh, Hidden Brain, a uh, podcast that I really like that played during that time. And I caught it partway into it, but it was the guest was a cognitive social uh, science professor from the University of California, uh, San Diego. And she was talking about uh, languages as kind of like her, her thing. And she was talking about living for a short time in Northern Australia with an Aboriginal group. And she said, she was talking about how language and thinking and the way we think are all connected. And she said, in their culture, when you approach someone, you don't say hi and you don't say hello. You ask, what direction are you heading? And the expectation is that you will answer with one of the cardinal directions. So north, south, east, west, or something in between. That is the expectation. And she said, I have no sense of direction. People say, what direction are you headed? And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. And she said they gave her the hardest time about it. Uh, in, in a loving way, kidding way, type way. But they couldn't conceive of someone not knowing what direction they're going because it's so embedded in their culture. I mean, it's so embedded, they don't say left or right. They use direction. So if I wanted to describe this hand, I would say it's my, I was afraid I'm going to get this wrong, eastward <laughs> hand or my western hand or my northeastern hand, depending on which way I'm facing. Well, this created some, some interesting things for her, and she thought about it a lot, and she said one day she was walking down a path, and something happened to her. She described it as kind of like a little, little window or screen opening up in her mind, and on that screen was kind of a bird's-eye view of her walking on the path, but it wasn't her, it was a dot. And so there was this view of looking down at the surrounding landscape, and she's walking the dot, and then she said, as I turn, this was the, the big turning point for her, as she turned, the map did not change. The map stayed the same, the dot went in the other direction. And she said, that's it. <laughs> that's, how I'm, that's how I can do this. So I call it having a map in your head, or a GPS in your head. Some people have it, some people don't. And uh, in, in my household, uh, Lois, my wife, we can go someplace once and not go for another year, and she doesn't need GPS to get back there. She's like, we turned at this house. Uh, that park right there, it's, it's right to the right here. And that's, that's how she can, and I can't do that. Absolutely cannot do that at all, and I'm just like in awe because I don't think she, like, first time she goes anywhere, like, memorizes everything, you know, to do it. It just, she just has this sense of getting from one place to another. But if you ask her, what's the quickest way of getting from here to there, and it's far enough away, she may not give you the best answer because she may take you the ways that she knows. She doesn't have a, a kind of a Twin Cities map in her head. I've discovered this over time. She doesn't have the map in her head that says, oh, yeah, you don't have to go the way that you've always gone. There's this like, quicker way to go that's a little bit more, more direct. So this lady, this scientist, this professor, she said that uh, she explained to one of the people in the community, she said, you wouldn't believe what happened. And she described the whole map in her head and looking down and all that sort of thing. 
And she was so excited to share that. And this lady looked at her and she said, of course, how else would you do it? <laughs> you know, nobody had explained to her how they did it, but she had to kind of discover it uh, for herself. So here's my question. How is your sense of direction when it comes to mapping your life? How's your sense of direction? When it comes to life, the landscape is way too complex for any human mind to see it or to map it. There is no map out there in your own head. You can't, like, get a bird's eye view of things. You don't have a bird's eye view of where you're going, where you're going to end up if you go certain directions. Just in yourself, you do not have that. Nobody has that because the landscape is constantly changing. There's so many contingencies, so many things that happen. Uh, if we want to think of kind of mapping our own life, it would be kind of like trying to figure out how to get from here to there uh, in a Doctor Strange movie. Um, and if you've not seen this, it may not make sense to you, but if you've seen any movie that's Doctor Strange, there's a certain point you know, where he does this and the whole world starts collapsing on itself. He's going upstairs, and then all of a sudden the stairs go like this, and now he's falling through the air. And, and it's just this, this is the urban landscape just folding and changing, and, and you wonder how are they going to even get anywhere, you know, in this or, or survive the falls and, and all that sort of thing. Except it is a Marvel movie, and they figure it out how to do it. So in that reality of how life actually is, how good could anybody's sense of direction actually be? So Trevin Wax calls our culture's approach to finding meaning and purpose and identity as the look in, look out, and look up approach. So we look inside of ourselves, who am I? What are my desires? What do I, who do I believe that I am? Then surround yourself with people who will agree with you, and then possibly look up and um, ask God or shape God into a God that will agree with you in one way or another. It's got a great book called uh, Rethink Yourself. It's in the uh, notes, in the resource section of the notes. There's also a shorter talk, about 20 minutes, that you can watch. It's kind of an overview of the book. So it's in there uh, as well. So. Uh, another way of describing this approach is that your desire determines your destiny. Your desire determines your destiny. We look at our dreams, our desires, who I am, that determines who I am, and what my destiny is. So, uh, Wax has some questions for this approach. He says, so oftentimes these, this kind of you do you and follow your heart and all that sort of thing, it just people don't ask the next set of questions that would naturally come to our minds if we weren't just kind of like so bombarded with this that, that it's like, you know, like a fish who doesn't recognize they're in water because, or we don't recognize the air that we're in, right? And so it, it rarely gets challenged, but he asks some really important questions. He says, how do we determine which of our desires to pursue? I don't know about you, but I got a lot, a lot of desires, and a lot of times the desires that I have are competing with each other. I can't have them all. And so, and some can be very strong but I have this strong desire and this strong desire, and if I go for this one, I can't have this one. If I go for this one, I can't have this one. So which one 
is it going to be? So he asks that question. The second question he asks is, how do we determine which desires are good and which are bad? If everything is looking within, is it just a subjective thing? It's like, you know, I develop my own moral compass completely, and uh, everybody else, you do what you think is right, I do what I think is right, I try not to cross over into your life. It doesn't work, but we try, to, we try to do that. Is that it? Yes, what happens to all of our relationships when we're all pursuing our own desires and expecting everyone to fall in line and support us? Whatever I decide I am, I want all the people, I only want people around me that say, yep, that's who you are. You've got our 100% support. It's really hard to sustain friendship. It's hard to sustain love, any kind of real love, when everyone is self-focused. By very definition, I'm focused on myself. It's hard to sustain love, which is outward. So it's really hard to do that. And the question is, can you really have any friends, real friends? Can you really have someone, can you really love someone and never question? the direction of their life or their perspective of themselves or of other people, that you can never question them, that you can possibly see a dangerous, broken way of approaching life. And, of course, we shouldn't, like, attack each other, but can, can we not raise questions and, in a loving way and graceful way, talk through some of these Decisions, or I, I don't think we can have real friendship and real love unless we can do that. Another question he asks is, what if your heart is lying to you or simply wrong? Um, so, for example, uh, if you've experienced depression, you know a lot of times when you're depressed, you just want to be alone. And you can, um, it's completely, it is completely up to you, but if you just Given to that, things just get worse and worse and worse. They spiral down. And medical professionals will tell you, no, you, you need to actually get out some. You need to get around people. And, um, and you can't just be alone. And that's the best thing for you. So do you follow your heart that says, I just want to be alone? Or do you follow a medical professional? And our heart's not very dependable. What if... What if you desire something that actually, if you get it, or you take it, is actually for you going to become an addiction that is going to ruin your life and the people around you? Um, or, it, it, or, it, or something like you, you follow a career, this is what my heart desires, this career, and you can't handle it. You, you can't balance your life at all, and your career becomes everything and everybody else gets swept away, or you want riches or celebrity, and you get that, and it actually ruins your life because you're not good at handling that. So what if your heart is lying to you or simply wrong? And what if your desires can only be fulfilled by hurting others? So to have this thing that I want here, well, I wanted this thing here, and I had it, but now I want this thing here. And to have this thing here, I can't have both, I'm going to abandon this thing here 
in order to have this thing here. And the thing I'm abandoning might be my kids. Might be my friendships. It might be those sort of things. So these are really some pretty obvious questions. They don't get asked very much today. You hear the motivational speech, you be you, follow your heart, all that sort of thing. But very few people today actually go that next step and start answering those questions. It's not that there aren't answers to those questions. There are some answers to those questions. Uh, the idea that we should look in first and follow our heart, it has roots in philosophies that go back hundreds of years. It's just now in modern Western culture that those ideas are at the forefront. They've been, but they've been percolating for a long, long time in certain circles. And, um, and so, and those ideas go back to philosophers that actually have answers for those kinds of things. And so if you ask some of the philosophers from 200, 300 years ago, 100 years ago, and say, well, what, what, what if my desires, you know, how am I going to know what's right and what's wrong and which desire and everything like that? They'd say, you can't. You can't. And you just have to have courage. Don't, don't pretend like there's a God. Don't pretend like there's direction. Don't pretend like you have a purpose. Just make it up. But maybe you don't have courage to live into that. That's, that's the basic answer. All right, that's the usual answer. So uh, Thaddeus Williams, who's a professor and author, he wrote an article recently where he looked at some of these philosophers of, of um, what's oftentimes called expressive uh, individualism, this look in yourself first. And he said, let's see how it turned out for them. So um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, all the way back into the 1700s, all I need to do is look inside myself. This was a major philosophy that he had, he reported, he talked about a lot. Along the way, in looking out for himself and inside himself, he abandoned five, all five of his children to early deaths in an orphanage because they were not the thing. You know, he wanted this over here. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, egoism, the self, the center of me, is the very essence of a noble soul. Well, uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche spent uh, the last 10 years of his life in an asylum. He was known for dancing naked, fantasizing about shooting the Kaiser, uh, William says, uh, believing himself to be Jesus Christ, Napoleon, Buddha, Buddha among others. That's, that's how his life pretty much ended. Michel uh, Foucault, exchange life in its entirety for sex itself, for the truth and the sovereignty of sex. Let sex rule in your life. Battled suicidal tendencies all of his adult life. Argued for consensual relations between adults and children, for the legalization of pedophilia in France. Uh, moved to Berkeley, California, where he threw himself into a sadomasochistic uh, gay scene, got AIDS, continued to have relations without telling his partners that he had AIDS. So Williams writes, what Foucault said, sex is worth dying for, he practiced, uh, 
what he preached, not only for himself, but for unsuspecting others. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, man is nothing else but what he makes himself. Known for being a womanizer, huge gigantic ego, got hooked on amphetamines, hid vodka behind things so he could get behind his, all of his books so he could get drunk, talk to imaginary visitors. So you'd be sitting there talking to him and you'd be talking to somebody that's not there. He eventually described himself as empty. He once said, there are not many things left in this world that excite me. And this is what Williams uh, writes at the end of the article. He says, I have not cherry-picked the least flattering cases. Read up on the personal lives of other saints of expressive individualism. And he lists a bunch of them. We know a tree by its fruits, and the fruits of these men's lives should be enough to give us pause before we embrace their calls to be true to ourselves. Now, their lives are not proof that they're wrong. If there is no God, they're probably as right as anybody else, right? Uh, but it should give us pause before we choose that kind of direction. So I want to I suggest why some of the way, reasons why we should look up first. Why should we look up first? Because the first page and the rest, the first page of the Bible and the rest of the Bible uses a look up, look out, look in approach. Doesn't mean that we don't look in, it's just we don't start there. And we look up first, we look up to see what God has to say. And when we look out, we come together with other people in community who are also looking up to see what God has to say. Does that mean we're all going to agree all the time? No. Uh, does it mean that everybody's going to support you know, my perspective? No. But we are together looking up, looking up at God. And then we look in uh, to see how God has designed us specifically and what our callings and all that sort of thing might be are very specific paths. So why look up first? One is, when it comes to life, to the complexity of a person's life, only God has the bird's eye view of the landscape and is able to map out the best path. If you were here last week, you have a, maybe a better sense, or if you know something about God's omniscience and omnipresence and, and all of that, you have an idea as to why God can have that bird's eye view, because he knows everything. He's not limited by time and by space. He knows every contingency. He's the one that can look down at our lives and can map it out for us. Number two, in Genesis 1, God the creator is also God the designer. So you see God bringing order to chaos, one of the major ways that creation, the word create, is understood in scriptures, bringing order to chaos. He creates a good world where humanity is going to be able to flourish. And not only for humanity to flourish, but a place where he can live with humanity. This goes back to week one of our series. All the, remember all the sevens and the structure, and just literary masterpiece of Genesis 1, just incredible literary masterpiece all moving towards this big idea that in the end, the seventh day doesn't end and God rests and God is with us. This is the world that he's creating and the world that he will once again recreate. 
So he's doing that, he's creating that kind of a world, and he creates humanity towards the end of the first page uh, to flourish in that world. Read the other creation stories of the um, ancient world. And uh, one of our staff, his son is in high school, and at his school they're reading creation stories from Babylonian creation stories and these ancient creation stories. And re read them, and what you discover is that humans are always created to, to serve the whims of the gods. Humans are made by the gods in order to supply what is lacking in the gods. In Genesis 1, God creates humanity to flourish, elevates humanity to rule over creation, and He needs nothing from them. Nothing. He simply wants to live with them. Now, although we don't see this until later in the story, we begin to discover that God is love, that God experienced love for uh, all of eternity past within himself, or the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. He lacks nothing. We talk about it in a story of God. We use some of the images that C.S. Lewis and some others of this beautiful dance, perfect harmony between the three persons of the Trinity. Why we can speak of God as love is because in all of eternity there has been love within God himself, the three persons. And so, um, but in spite of the fact that he is lacking nothing, he creates us to share in that love and to experience that love, in a sense to, to not become gods, but to join the dance of Father, Son, and Spirit. I can look up and ask that kind of God, what is my life about? What is it for? What is my purpose? God that is love within himself, who lacks nothing, who creates me to experience love with him. And then as the story progresses, when humanity rebels, number four, and humanity introduces evil into the earthly realm, God devises a plan to help us get right with him again. And he does it by becoming one of us and um, without ceasing to be him. And he takes on the just and righteous penalty for what? For the reign of evil that we've unleashed in our world. He takes the penalty for the reign of evil we have unleashed into the world. He does that for us. Can we trust a God like that? Can we look up and ask a God like that, what, what is, who am I? What, what am I about? What, what have you called me to be? What have you made me to be? And then finally, his desires for you are better for you than your desires for you. Famous saying by C.S. Lewis, um, family's going on vacation, right? They're going on vacation to the beach. Their young child has never been to the beach. First trip to go spend a vacation on the beach. But the child is playing in a puddle, loving the puddle. And it's like, hey, we need to get you dressed and get in the car so we can go to the beach. And the child starts crying. 
because the child wants to play in the puddle. <laughs> Doesn't know what a beach is. Has no idea. And he says, that's us. God is, he has this great and grand plans for us. He's got something so much better than anything that we experience. I mean, we only get a taste of it now. He's, he's calling us to something so much better, but we get satisfied with the puddles. God's desires for us are better for us than our desires for us. Look up first. Look up first. Only God can map out our life and map it well, and only He is dependable, and only He is trustworthy. He is not restrictive. He's not stealing your freedom. He's giving us freedom. So what do we do with this? Well, I could start this afternoon uh, watching a game or watching a show this evening, and you're going to get bombarded with stories and messages about what the good life is. It happens when you go to work tomorrow, you go to school, your social science teacher tells you what it is, or your company with some major motivational something so that you'll make more money for them type thing, you know, give you a message that, that you know, you do you kind of motivational speech. It could be the premise of an entire series you're in the middle of right now on Netflix. Its premise is you do you, you know, seek your heart. What, what, do, what do we do? One of the things we can do is we can listen and not just buy in, but listen and go, is that the look-in approach, and where is that really going to end? Kind of ruins some things for you, I do admit that. Um, but ask those, ask, ask those questions. What would a look-up approach look like instead of what I'm hearing right now at work or at school or in that show or in that commercial? So that's one of the things we can do is we can listen carefully and discern what is the message that is coming across. But there's another thing that we need to do. Most, most of us in here, I think we would be devotees of the look-up approach. We would say, oh, that's, that, that's, that's why I'm in this church looking at the Bible and everything like that, is because I'm, I want to hear from God, and I want to surround myself with people who are also wanting to hear from God. And I come to this church because it teaches the Bible so we can hear from God. So that's where most of us are, and yet we need, especially us, we need to be really careful that we're not in actuality bending God's message, you know, taking God's word and bending it to actually uh, fulfill, say that the Bible is saying what my desire is God's desire, you know, kind of twisting what God has to say or shifting what God has to say so that it aligns more with what I want, what I think, the way that I think, you know, all that sort of thing. And it's so easy to do that, to, to get God to take, to take what God has said and then to kind of bring it over and baptize it with my perspective instead of listening to what God has said. And we do that all the time. We do it in our political lives, our political ideas. We buy wholesale political programs that are out there that are not based on Scripture. 
buy them wholesale, and then baptize the ideas that are, don't seem to be very scriptural with Bible verses and ideas. We all do that instead of critically looking at every program and asking those questions. We do it with how we use our money. We do it with how we use our time. We do it with how we use our possessions. We do it with how we live in community or what we expect from our church, what we really expect. Okay, you're teaching me the Bible, but I also expect you to do this for me and this for me and this for me. And you look at it and you go, I don't think any of those things are really biblical, are they? But we find a way to make it about us. We all do this, every single one of us. I do it. Every single one of us does this. The way that we express love will oftentimes be, or express desire, will not align with what God is saying. We need to be very open to correction. We need to be very careful not to hide behind the Bible or orthodoxy and affirming good theology, but actually living a look-in first approach. We need to be confident in God, but humble about our own ability to hear Him. So listen to the messages, but also look in your own heart. Be open to correction, humbly moving forward, asking God, what is it you really have for us, for me, for my family? What is it you really have? Not, what, not my will, but your will be done. So let's begin our response to God's revelation of himself through his word. Taking out our the bread from the communion packet. I want to go back to something I said earlier. I think it was point four on why look in up first. When humanity rebelled, when we introduced evil into the earthly realm by rebelling against God, God came up with a plan. I mean, you see it in Genesis 3, you find it again in Genesis 15, and through the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. God comes up with a plan that He is saying, there's going to come a point where I am going to be torn to pieces. I am going to be torn to pieces to make things right between you and me, because you are incapable of making things right. I will do it. And Jesus comes, and He dies on the cross for our sins. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I pray for us. I pray for us that we would be in our lives, humbly going forward, listening to you with a deep, deep set conviction that it is your word and your love and Christ and the Holy Spirit that must guide us. But humble, always recognizing that we don't always hear you well. Help us to, to be real friends to each other and to love each other 
enough to go through this together. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has never, has never received what Jesus did on the cross for themselves, Jesus dying for their sins, that maybe today they would receive, receive you, receive Jesus as Savior and as Lord, as their God. I pray they would do that right now. And Father, for all the ways that we find ourselves just so confused because we've been going after a look-in approach and it's been um, wrecking havoc, wreaking havoc on our lives. I pray, Father, that we would recognize that we can confess and we can repent and we can put our faith back in you and trust you each step of the way. I pray that we would. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.